this evening. This is the close of the Order of Salvation uh, evening sermon series. But Order of Salvation does not include union with Christ in the order itself. Uh, Union with Christ is what encompasses the order of salvation. If you haven't been here or if you've forgotten, the order of salvation is taking observation from what Scripture teaches how God and His wisdom and kindness has met every need of fallen man in redemption. And so there are benefits that come to us from Christ, and they come in a logical order. And there are several places we see this in Scripture, and I'll begin reminding you tonight from actually Romans 8.30, and those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So we've looked at the order of salvation, effectual calling, regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. We close with union with Christ because this is the saving relationship in which all this occurs. It underlies every step of the order of salvation. Union with Christ means to be united to Christ. It is the necessary context for the application of what Christ accomplished. Now that sounds somewhat impersonal. Let's stick to the language of relationship. It is the relationship through which salvation is applied. Now Scripture describes union with Christ in many ways. If we were just to take the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, it likens union with Christ as the relationship of stones as part of a structure and a building. In Ephesians chapter 4, it's like the connection between our physical heads and our physical bodies. In Ephesians 5, it is like the union between a husband and a wife. Jesus himself spoke of union with himself uh, in several places, probably most notably in John chapter 15, describing it as the relationship between vine and branch. Jesus is the vine. Those who are united to him are the branches. Rankin Wilborn points out that the number of similes, metaphors, and word pictures for union with Christ tells us that it is extremely important. He also points out that the variety of the descriptions tells us that it is far-reaching. And so there's no way that we can be exhaustive tonight at all. But if we could come away with seeing how it lies behind and through the order of salvation, and if we could see how it is central to salvation and it provides the overarching principle for the order of salvation, we have done some good. And so that is our goal. Before we read Romans chapter 16, verse 7, let's pray again. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to your word as it was just prayed to sit under it, to receive it. 
We pray, Lord, that your word would minister to us by your spirit, that we might be reminded of precious truths, that we might feed on the bread of life, and that we might be equipped to live lives on mission for your glory as we walk with you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 16, verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Three things I want us to consider about union with Christ tonight. We begin with thinking about some of the dimensions of union with Christ. The second thing we will consider is the purpose of our present union with Christ. And we close with some encouragements that come from our present union with Christ. Encouragements for today, tomorrow, and forever. The dimensions of our union with Christ. There is one union with different aspects. So we could say there's three ways to understand the believer's single union with Christ. Union goes back before history. Union is tied to redemptive history. And then we see union, as we saw in this verse, in the present personal history of the believer. So union before history. This is how union with Christ relates to God's eternal decree. You could jot it down, Ephesians 1, 3-4. Listen carefully. You may be familiar with this passage, but listen for the in Christ language. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. How far back does union with Christ go? Well, here Paul tells us that we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. The good news of predestination is not that God saw anything in us to predestine us to be his people, but that he predestined us in Christ to be his. So that's one dimension before history. Another dimension is we see union with Christ as it relates to redemptive history. This is as it relates to the coming and the work of Christ in the atonement. There's numerous, numerous passages but one good example passage is Galatians 2.20. There the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now you know, Paul was not one of the thieves there next to Jesus on the cross. What is Paul getting at? Well, in some way, because he was predestined in Christ, that means that when Christ was accomplishing Paul's salvation, 
It was as if Paul was there with Christ on the cross with him. There is a redemptive historical dimension. Those who are predestined to be in Christ are then united to Christ in the historical events of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And those who are united to him wait glorification. That comes to our passage. Our passage is one of many passages that then points to the present personal history. Or, as theologians have called it, our existential union. I would get tongue-tied on trying to use the theological term, but as existential union. That means as it relates to our existence. Romans 16, verse 7. Paul says four things about this couple here. Andronicus and Junia. First, he says, they're my kinsmen. That means they're Jews. Then he says, they're my fellow prisoners. They were imprisoned for the gospel at some point. Maybe they actually were imprisoned with Paul for the gospel. Then the third thing he points out, they are well known to the apostles, meaning they are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles. And then what does Paul say about them? The fourth thing, they were in Christ before me. This couple most likely were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And Paul is simply stating they were believers before he was. But it's a simple observation, but Paul doesn't say they were a Christian before I was a Christian. He says they were in Christ before me. This is how Paul describes Christians. Being a Christian is more than being an imitator of Jesus. Christians are his disciples, but there's something more fundamental to being a Christian. It is being in Christ. A Christian is someone who is in Christ. And so the phrase in Christ and with Christ is everywhere in Paul's letters. Next time you read one of his epistles, take note and tally up the number of times he uses in Christ or with Christ. This concept pervades his thinking. So even when he's just listing a group of people to greet, he is thinking about them being in Christ. And it is this phrase and this terminology from which the concept of union of Christ comes. And it's an aside, but it's not just in Paul's writings. It's in Peter's letters, it's in John's letters, and as I alluded to earlier, it's in the teachings of Jesus himself. And this verse helps us see a dimension of our union with Christ. It's the present union. They were in Christ before him. Paul is cognizant of his life before experiencing union with Christ. And he is aware of his life after entering into the experience of union with Christ. So in terms of the order of salvation, when Paul was effectually called, his present union with Christ began. And it's the same for you. John Murray put it this way, apart from union with Christ, we cannot view past, present, or future 
with anything but dismay and Christless dread. So thanks be to God that union with Christ is all-encompassing from eternity to eternity. That brings us to the second thing. What is the purpose of our present union with Christ? Now that we experience the union that is rooted before the foundations of the world, that was accomplished in redemptive history, that now we have entered into through our effectual calling, what is the purpose of our present union? Well, it's several related purposes. There is the representative purpose. There is a transformational purpose. And those lead to the ultimate purpose of union with Christ, which is communion with God. So the representative purpose. Jesus represents those who are united with him. It is the legal aspect of our present union. As our representative, he fulfilled the law for us, for those who trust in him. For his people, on their behalf, he accomplished full obedience, actively keeping the law, passively suffering the penalty and curse of breaking God's law. And in terms of the order of salvation, this is how the Christian is justified. Because of Christ's representation, the Christian is pardoned and considered righteous. Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So as their representative, Christ covers his people. Think of it kind of maybe like this way. Um, I know among us, uh, there are disagreements on which university team you cheer for here in Michigan. Now, if you were to show up in certain environment, environments here in East Lansing wearing maize and blue, you would be, treating, be treated with hostility. But if somehow you got a hold of the Sparty mascot costume and you put that on and you walked into the Breslin Center, you'd be treated with favor, with love and celebration and they would rejoice that you were there. This is something of like the way Christ represents his people and covers them with his righteousness when they enter into union with him. Because in justification, nothing has changed about our condition in justification. It's our status has been changed. And we are treated according to a new status, Christ being our representative. But union with Christ is more than representative it is transformative. It addresses our legal needs before the judge, but it also addresses the sin that has corrupted our condition. And so as far as the order of salvation goes, when we come into union with Christ, then we have regeneration and the beginning of our sanctification. And both of those are rooted in union with Christ. Romans 6.11 so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There, Christ's resurrection then brings us out of spiritual death into new life, and his resurrection power then animates and gives power to our pursuit of holiness and walking in newness of life. His representative work is an act of free grace. His transforming work is a work of free grace. And this representative union and this transformational union leads us to communion with God. It is what we were created for, and it is what union with Christ ultimately answers. How will man come back into communion with God? The barrier of our guilt and condemnation that keeps us from God is covered in our representative union so we can approach God. And we mortify sin and we're renewed in the image of God so that we might walk with Him and delight in Him. This is what we were created for, and we see God doing this in His major acts that the Trinitarian God does. We see God doing this in creation where communion is lost, but is what we were intended for. And we see how God regains communion with sinners through the incarnation and that Pentecost. In the act of creation, we see that there is a distinction between the creator and the creature. And while maintaining that distinction, we also see in Scripture that there is a compatibility between God and man prior to the fall. God is a relational being, and man is made as a, in a, as a relational being in his image. Made not just to relate to other humans, but to know, to worship, and to walk with God. Remember what happens after Adam and Eve's sin? They have a sense of shame and guilt, and they try to cover their sin with, with clothing, and then they try to hide from God. Why were they trying to hide from God? Well, in Genesis 3, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And this is their great shame. That they knew that they were made to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day and that had been lost. So the second great Trinitarian event after creation is God sending His Son to take on flesh in the incarnation. And what was lost requires that God would unite Himself to man. And so the Son takes on a nature like ours and unites it to His nature. He remains divine and becomes human. He permanently joins Himself to humanity. In doing so, He explains how God would keep His promise that He had given to His people for hundreds and hundreds of years, over and over again. God said, you will be my people and I will be your God. Jeremiah 11.4 The promise is fulfilled in Christ. 
God is our God in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are God's people. As the angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, Mary, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God uniting himself to man in order that communion to be restored. Again, reminding you Hebrews chapter 2, 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. When we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating that Christ has come in order that communion with God through union with Him could be restored. Christ united Himself to us in the Incarnation and we become united to Him by the Holy Spirit. That leads us to the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. At Pentecost, the Spirit unites the church to Christ. To understand what happens on the day of Pentecost, we look at Acts chapter 2, we look at the prophet Joel. But one of the most important explanations of what is occurring is actually the upper room discourse in John 14. The disciples, remember, they are just somewhat becoming discouraged. They realize that Jesus is going to have to leave them. And what does he promise? He said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. John chapter 14, verse 18. And John 14, 26, what does he say? He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you your remembrance, all that I've said to you. He said, I will not leave you alone. Me and my Father are sending the helper. And explaining what this would be like, in verse 20 he says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So when Jesus is explaining how the Holy Spirit unites the believer to himself, he says, it's like the union between me and the Father. It's not exactly the same. It's by analogy, but he's saying, just as I am in the Father and the Father is in me, I will unite myself to you by my spirit dwelling in you. You in me, I in you. And then in verse 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Is that through union with Christ, we have communion with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God comes and makes a home with and in His people by His Spirit dwelling in them. That word home in the Greek is clearly a permanent dwelling in contrast to a temporary tent. God says, through the Son, what was lost is regained. Now this helps us understand the, the nature of the union that we do have with Christ. It is not the same union that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not the same union that exists between a husband and a wife. 
These are all helps us. They give those word pictures, similes, and metaphors what the union is like. But ultimately, the union is to be understood as a spiritual union. Meaning that it is possible and it is through the dwelling of the Spirit of God in the believer. It is a spiritual union. Now, come to three encouragements. And this is selective. We could have listed three dozen or 3,000 encouragements that come from our present union with Christ for the believers. But I chose three for today, tomorrow, and forever. So first, the encouragement that comes from our present union with Christ for today. Well, we find great encouragement in our sanctification. Particularly, we find great encouragement in the area of sexual purity. And I know everyone probably just woke up if they're starting to doze off. Today, we live in a day that we are overwhelmed with opportunities for sexual immorality. Are we not? Every time there's a new technology, people try to figure out how to use that technology for sexual sin. I was talking to a campus minister earlier this week, and he was talking about having to take one of his students' phones and help him and say, I'm taking these apps off your phone, and I'm changing the code so you can't put these apps back on your phone because these apps are destroying your life with sexual sin. But our union with Christ encourages us towards sexual purity. Remember, when the Apostle Paul's dealing with the Corinthian church, there's this pervasive idea going around Corinth that sex is just something you do at your body. And that's all it is. Just as you put food in your belly to feed your stomach, the same way sex serves your physical body. And so he has to tell them, no, it's more than that. It's the mingling of souls. But what does he point the believers towards? In 1 Corinthians 6, 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Now, it is the motive for the believer to fight and flee sexual immorality. Why? Because in Christ, they have something greater and better, and they are united to him. Now, in our day, people are very confused about this, right? They want to say, it's just a physical thing, and yet it's also the most important thing about my identity. And yet still, union with Christ is the greatest answer for the sexual insanity and the sexual immorality of our day. Look to him. Then there is an encouragement from our present union with Christ for tomorrow. Today in our world, the way to make money on the internet is to get people to click on your links and ad revenue and things that come from that. And what's a surefire way to get someone to click on, click on your links? So, well, if it's not to tempt them to view something illicit, it also would be 
put a dreadful headline about how the world will end tomorrow or how all the banks will collapse tomorrow or how our food supply or overpopulation, something that will cause your level of anxiety and fear to rise, get your attention. I need to find out about this. This is important. We live in a day of ever-increasing anxiety. But if you're resting in your union with Christ, there is an answer for the fears of tomorrow. One of my favorite ways this is said in the New Testament is Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a just real exhortation. Here it is. Thousands of years ago. What's a temptation for believers? Well, one temptation is to be caught up in the love of money. Why is that? Well, because it seems like if you have a lot of money, you can ensure some level of security for tomorrow. And isn't that something that people still struggle with today? Isn't that something that at times you and I have to battle and fight? Saying, no, we will be content with what the Lord has provided and we will not place our hope in riches. But we don't worry about tomorrow because Jesus said he will never leave us or forsake us. We have no fear about tomorrow because if we are here tomorrow, Christ will be here with us. Our present union with Christ has encouragement for tomorrow and has encouragement for forever. Our union with Christ gives us the assurance of God's love for us. In John chapter 17, toward the conclusion of the upper room discourse, Jesus is praying his great high priestly prayer. And there are so many important points. And when he is praying for the church to come and praying for our future unity among believers, see, as we are united to Christ, we're also united to one another. As we commune with him, we have communion with one another. And as he's praying for our oneness and unity, have you ever noticed what Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 23? Speaking to his father, he says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. So there's our unity, our union and communion as believers together. So that the world may know that you sent me, and listen to this, and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus says, those who are in union with him, the Father loves them the same way that he loves the Son. 
love them even as you have loved me. Here we have an assurance of a never-ending love. That once we are hidden in Christ and once He dwells in us and we dwell in Him, the Father sets His love on us in the same way that He loves the Son. The communion that we enter into is a never-ending communion, an experience of love, for love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So because of our union with Christ, we cannot view past, present, or future with anything but hope and confidence in our Savior. Let us pray. Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or what delight it is that you have called us and that you brought us from death to light so that we could hear that call that we might believe in your Son, that we might turn from our sins, that we might be justified, that we might grow in Christlikeness and holiness, that you would keep us and preserve us and one day glorify us, that for all eternity we would know you, worship you, delight in you, and communion with you. We ask that in this Christmas time, that you would make the reality of our present union with Christ precious to us. And that we would take advantage of what is rightfully ours in Christ. Fellowship with you, our great and wonderful God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.